Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, the Florida Council of Arts and Culture, and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, the important role that Florida played in the American Revolution is often overlooked. They became so incensed that they, they made effigies of John Hancock and Samuel Adams and hung them in the trees in the St. Augustine Plaza and set them on fire. And this colony was adamantly loyal when the war broke out. We'll discuss Miami Beach hotels in the 1940s. In the mid-20th century, Miami Beach was the premier destination. People were coming from all over the country to stay in, in South Beach and South Miami Beach. So it really started building up a name for itself very early on. And we'll explore the history of Pine Castle. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. The so-called 13 original colonies that would lead to the creation of the United States exclude the 14th and 15th colonies of East Florida and West Florida. St. Augustine, Florida was an active city for more than four decades before the English established a settlement at Jamestown, Virginia in 1607. The Spanish gave Florida its name in 1513 and established the first continuously occupied European settlement in what would become the United States in 1565. After two centuries under Spanish occupation, the British took control of Florida in 1763. The British separated the area into East Florida with its capital in St. Augustine and West Florida with its capital in Pensacola. Under British rule, East Florida consisted of what is the modern boundary of the state east of the Apalachicola River. West Florida included the modern panhandle of Florida as well as parts of what are now Louisiana, Mississippi, and Alabama. Roger Smith focused his doctoral studies at the University of Florida on the topic of Florida in the American Revolution. Smith says that for the first 11 years of occupation, the British colonists in Florida had difficulties with the Seminole Indians. In 1774, uh, Governor Patrick Tonin arrived, and the very first thing he did in literally two weeks' time was call a Congress with Cowkeeper, and they instantly uh, became friends. And, and allies, and it was more than just political. They, uh, Cowkeeper absolutely respected Tonin and, uh, and trusted him at his word. And um, there, there was where the, where the relationship got built so that as the, as the revolution approached, the Seminoles truly became allies as opposed to you know, people who were, would be considered a, a, you know, someone just causing problems. You know, and, and, and so, so um, production, uh, agricultural production began, to, began to, to, to blossom. The other thing that Tonin did was he built um, two rowboats that were so large, the only way I can describe them is they're like 18th century tugs. 
And they would literally, if they couldn't tug in, uh, you know, a large sloop over the, the notorious bar there, a sandbar there in St. Augustine, they would row out to the, uh, across the bar and unload ships uh, there and bring it into the harbor. So for the first time, uh, a decent amount of trade was actually coming and going from St. Augustine. And, uh, and, and so the, the colony actually um, began to prosper. And uh, so when, when 1776 came along, and on, on August 11th, when news of the Declaration of Independence became known in St. Augustine, the people were, were kind of like, you want us to do what? <laughs> we just started making money. And now <laughs> are you, they became so incensed that they, they made effigies of John Hancock and Samuel Adams and hung them in the trees in the St. Augustine Plaza and set them on fire. And this colony was adamantly loyal when the war broke out. At the start of the American Revolution in 1776, East Florida and West Florida were the only two southern colonies that remained loyal to King George III. This was a problem for the British as the southern colonies in North America supplied food, clothing, and other supplies to their sugar plantations in the Caribbean. We always look at the American Revolution from an American perspective. Thirteen colonies from New Hampshire down to, down to Georgia, and we've always been told that nothing happened in the South until 1780 when Mel Gibson came along and won the war single-handedly. Um, actually, when, uh, when I looked at the war from a British perspective, uh, my first question was, what maps were they looking at back then? And when you do that, you realize we're not talking about 13 colonies, we're talking about 33 colonies that they had to be concerned with from Nova Scotia down to Grenada. Half of those colonies, 16 of them, were in the Caribbean. And approximately 60% of the British military during the American Revolution was stationed in the Caribbean, not up where the fighting was, but down where sugar was being produced because sugar was the equivalent in, in global economics of, of crude oil today. It's what afforded empire. And the, the British, uh, when, when you read uh, their primary documents, you realize they had one primary goal, to, to not lose a square inch of soil uh, in the Caribbean to the Spanish, Dutch, or French. Priority number two was to reclaim the American South because by September of 1775, every southern colony between the Chesapeake Bay and the St. Mary's River had fallen to the rebellion. Only East and West Florida remained loyal. The Floridas were located right between the British sugar plantations in the Caribbean and the Northern Colonial Revolt. The British launched attacks on the American Rebellion from both St. Augustine in East Florida and Pensacola in West Florida. St. Augustine was particularly important to the British as it had the only stone fortresses south of the Chesapeake Bay. The British had repeatedly attacked the Castillo de San Marcos when it was under Spanish control and realized the strength of its coquina walls. And the British understood that the waterways, the seas, were, were they weren't barriers. That's how you got places faster. And in 1765, when the stamp tax revolt broke out, um, there were Sons of Liberty riots in Nevis and St. Kitts. So they understood that all this, this, this momentum of rebellion and sedition had to do was hit, was hit the water and start, you know, start right out into the Caribbean and, in, and into the Southern Atlantic. And they saw St. Augustine particularly because it had the only pair of stone fortresses south of the Chesapeake Bay. They saw uh, East and West Florida as barriers to sedition from rolling out into the Caribbean and then launching pads uh, for regaining the American South. 
Although the importance of Florida in the American Revolution is usually ignored in history books, George Washington was well aware of the area's strategic significance. Washington wrote more than 80 letters about the Florida colonies to the Continental Congress and his generals, and he authorized five separate invasions of East Florida between 1776 and 1780. You get into the George Washington Papers, and in 1775, in, in December 18th of 75, he writes John Hancock, the, pres uh, the uh, president of the Continental Congress, and says, we've intercepted a packet of letters bound for the, the, the Caribbean and St. Augustine. The British are stockpiling arms and munitions in the castle and barracks in St. Augustine. And Washington called for an army of militia to be authorized by Congress from Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina, and Georgia. Congress became so alarmed that on January 1st of 1776, they said, we're gonna, we're gonna make sure you get your militia army, and we're also gonna add to that continental regulars from North Carolina, South Carolina, and Georgia. So this is no, this is no border skirmish. And it was the first of five invasions that Washington um, called for and Congress authorized uh, on East Florida. So he fully understood the significance of East Florida and its, its potential role uh, in, in the American Revolution. Since East Florida remained under British rule during the American Revolution, it became a haven for British loyalists who moved there from the rebellion in the northern colonies. As Roger Smith explains, this actually allowed for East Florida to thrive. As far as a, a British colony was concerned, that was the best thing that happened to East Florida because it was a small colony when, when the war broke out. There was approximately 3,500 people, and the majority of them were slaves. Um, by 1778, there was a population of over 10,000. And, uh, and now there were enough people and, and sadly, slave population to get the colony to where it was producing enough to where they not only were fulfilling the needs of the colony itself, but they were picking up the slack in the Caribbean for the foodstuffs and the uh, flax for clothing and things that fed and clothed the slave population that produced the sugar. So the uh, embargo that the Continental Congress actually called upon for, for trade against the British West Indies ended up falling, uh, you know, uh, being a moot point because uh, East Florida literally picked up about 80% of the slack and, uh, and, and kept the Caribbean afloat in that regard. During a series of battles from 1779 to 1781, Spain was able to recapture West Florida from the British. When the American Revolution ended in 1783, England returned East Florida to the Spanish to keep control of Gibraltar. For these people down here, it was tragic because uh, the majority of them believed that they had earned the right, just as the Canadians had, to remain a British colony here in North America. They had fought, uh, they had fended off invasions, they had participated in the invasion of Florida, I mean of Georgia, and, uh, and, and then on into Charleston. And, uh, but the bottom line was um, the Spanish wanted Gibraltar. And, uh, and the British basically took the stance of, you tried twice during the war and you failed. We're not going to give it up at the treaty and here at a table. So better, you better come up with something else. And the Spanish said, fine. Um, We've already taken West Florida, let us keep that and we'll take East Florida. And the British said, fine. It came down to, to you know, economics again because Gibraltar was so pivotal in controlling the flow of trade in and out of the Caribbean and the British weren't willing to give that up. But these poor people down here who had fought and bled and, and, and set up new lives 
and, uh, and, and thought that they had found, you know, kind of their forever home, uh, were basically traded back like pawns. And, uh, and it, it didn't go well. It, it, there was a lot of resentment down here. Florida would become a United States territory in 1821 and was named a state in 1845. During the Civil War, Florida seceded from the Union, which is probably why its role with the American Revolution has been minimized. You see, during the Civil War, uh, not a lot of history produced, uh, you know, and a lot of writing, not a lot of scholastic work makes sense. You get into uh, Reconstruction and, uh, and, and the Northern Industrialists are now looking back to their trading partners and in Europe and saying, okay, let's get things going again. And they basically look at us and say, gee, you know, you guys kind of imploded here and you haven't been around that long, you know. And, uh, and it was like, no, 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 we, we had, we're 13 united colonies. That was nothing but a hiccup. And, and now, he says, we actually, they, that's what they said, we actually have professional historians for the first time in our country's history. Because it wasn't until the 18, early 1880s that you could get a PhD in history. So, so they basically said, it's time to write official histories of the beginnings of our country and the American Revolution. And uh, well, let's, let's look at which universities had, had history departments to do that. They were, I mean, the Southern schools were, were all but wiped out. And they were in existence, but, but their, their, uh, their population, their student populations were, were so decimated. And uh, so who was writing that history? Well, it was the University of Chicago and uh, Northwestern and uh, you know, the Ivy Leagues and the Northern schools. And it was uh, not an era of political correctness. They took the opportunity to get their own little bit of vengeance on the, on the South, and they basically wrote the Southern colonies out of the first five years of the American Revolution. In an effort to inform the widest possible audience about the often overlooked role of Florida in the American Revolution, Roger Smith has created a series of short books that are accessible to students and the general public. This was actually my wife's idea. I'm, I'm working on the manuscript and, uh, you know, you're pulling your hair out when you're doing things like that. And she said, you know, Roger, every semester that you don't get this book out there, there's another group of kids go through the Florida school system who don't understand that they have this kind of history, that, that the American Revolution is actually relevant to them. And, and she's from Boston, so this meant a lot to her. So she came up with this concept of, of let's, let's, put this information out in like movie trailers, you know, bite-sized chunks, small little books that, uh, that give the good, solid information. They do it in a way that isn't uh, clunky. And uh, so every page, adults love it because of the information that they're learning, but for on every single page, there's an, an image or a map showing troop movements or something, a, a sidebar of, of information. She was proofreading it for me and she said, uh, she said, Roger, what's coquina? I said, you know what coquina is. She goes, I know I do, but what if I'm an eighth grade girl who's just moved here from Pennsylvania? I have no idea what you're talking about. And that was when the idea came to us to create these little sidebars, you know, whenever we mention something. So it doesn't bog down the text. But, uh, the, you know, when you find five years of missing uh, military history in the, in the South, you find five years of missing African-American history. And that became book number two, Hope of Freedom, Southern Blacks and the American Revolution. And, uh, and, and the, the stories that, that, that came from, from their, their experiences here in the Southern Colonies during this missing five years of history. Book three's just come out on women of the American Revolution, Lost Voices of America's First Generation. 
Dr. Roger Smith is author of The Fourteenth Colony, The American Revolution's Best Kept Secret, and other books. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org to find out about upcoming events like the Florida Frontiers Festival and the FHS Annual Meeting and Symposium. Watch archived editions of our television series, Florida Frontiers. Find great books on Florida history and culture and much more. While you're there, you can subscribe to our great journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly. That's myfloridahistory.org. And the place to be is at the Floridiana Hotel Soaking up the sunshine Riding the swells Won't you send me a postcard from the Floridiana Hotel Bringing me blue skies and wishing me well Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, Miami Beach was a popular tourist destination almost from the time it was established, right? Yeah, that's right. Uh, but if you were to go back a little over 100 years ago and visit Miami Beach, it was little more than a, a mangrove jungle sitting on top of a barrier island. There was uh, very little hospitable surroundings there, essentially. Very different from what it is today. It really wasn't until the early 20th century when the city of Miami was actually incorporated in 1896 that visitors began going across Biscayne Bay by boat and visiting the Miami Beach area. Uh, and it wasn't long after that that developers, namely Carl Fisher, uh, John Collins, the Pankos family, the Loomis uh, brothers, folks like that, saw the writing on the wall and decided to uh, begin developing this sandbar. And they were dredging out much of Biscayne Bay to allow uh, shipping to come into the city of Miami. And all of that fill started filling out this barren sandbar and started building up Miami Beach a little bit. And it was uh, early on in, in the teens, actually, that they built a wooden bridge called the Collins Bridge, which is now Venetian Causeway, that connected the mainland of Florida, Miami, with Miami Beach. And in the 1920s, we really saw the first great land boom, uh, really starting about 1917 when Miami Beach was incorporated into the 1920s. Large hotels were constructed, and these large hotels were built for the uh, wealthy northerners uh, who came down on, on Flagler's East Coast Railroad uh, and ended up in Miami, and they wanted to spend time right on the ocean front. So these huge hotels were built. Uh, but then, of course, the 1926 hurricane struck, uh, wiped out a lot of Miami Beach because it's such a low-lying area. And then, of course, the 1929 stock market crash ended a lot of that development. But beginning in the 1930s, some of these smaller uh, hotels were, were beginning to be constructed. These were four or five-story buildings, uh, usually stucco buildings, and this begins what we call the, the Art Deco period or the Art Modern period uh, that, uh, that Miami uh, became very famous for. And you have here some really interesting documents and, and objects relating to these early hotels. 
Yeah, that's right. What we're looking at today is a collection of hotel flyers. Uh, now, I mentioned in the 1930s and 40s, they started building these much smaller, um, a little more uh, sensible kind of buildings that would cater to sort of the regular folks. These were the travelers that were coming down to Florida. Uh, these weren't the Vanderbilt or the Carnegie's. These were people visiting South Florida for the first time and really wanted kind of the best rate. So these hotels would compete for their business. And they started springing up all up and down uh, what is now Ocean Drive and South Beach, the, the most popular part of my Miami Beach. What's so fascinating about these, usually they were uh, brightly colored. The the idea was to attract the attention of the traveler, much like today. Hotel businesses are, are competing for patrons. But what stands out, I think, about these early brochures is probably the price. Uh, for instance, we have the Beacon Hotel, which is actually still a hotel in Miami Beach. You can stay at the Beacon Hotel from April to November 1st. The price for one bedroom, this was a double occupancy bedroom, was only a dollar per day. Uh, and, and it's almost hard to imagine. If you look through some of these other brochures, we see 50 cents, 75 cents uh, for the more high end hotels. It may have been $2 a day. Incredible prices to stay right on uh, South Miami Beach. Absolutely incredible. And like I said before, many of these hotels you can still stay in today. We have the Abbey, the Beacon. Um, some had been renovated over the years. Like I said, even uh, in the mid 20th century, Miami Beach was the premier destination. People were coming from all over the country uh, to stay in, in South Beach and South Miami Beach. So it really started building up a name for itself very early on. And you have a really interesting matchbook here, too, that is from the, the Broadmoor. Yeah, that's right. What's great about this match, it's actually an oversized matchbook. So it's a little bit larger than what you might see. And, and matchbooks are fairly common. You'd find them in hotels on the time, uh, restaurants, and they would use them for advertising purposes. But if you flip it open, uh, printed on one of the matches, it says, don't burn this one. It has value. Uh, and it actually has a coupon inside uh, for summer rates as low as $1 to stay at the, at the Broadmoor Hotel right on the beach. Now, you've mentioned that some of these hotels still exist. Uh, how much of this old Miami Beach still exists today? Well, so the mid-20th century is really the heyday for a lot of the people coming down and staying in these hotels and into the 1960s, even the early 1970s. But that area began to sort of decline. A lot of these buildings were falling apart. And it was at that time we had really one of the first preservation projects of its kind. There was a lot of work being done to preserve what is now known as the Miami Art Deco District. It was an entire district, hundreds of buildings that were included. And they all date from this period, from the early 1920s to about the 1940s. Again, characteristics include the, the stucco walls, fairly low buildings, maybe four or five uh, stories high, not the high rises that we see uh, throughout much of South Florida today, but they had a very distinct characteristic. Uh, and it was really a, a group of, of like-minded individuals that decided they were going to buy up these buildings and work very hard to protect it. And they really kind of set the precedent for a lot of other uh, district-wide preservation efforts throughout the country. So if you drive uh, down South Beach today, you'll see a lot of these brightly colored art deck districts. In fact, uh, when you talk about South Beach or Miami Beach in general today, uh, anywhere in the world, most people think automatically about these beautifully preserved buildings. Thanks, Ben. Sure. Thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. In the place to be is at the Floridiana Hotel Swimming with the dolphins Riding the swells Won't you send me a postcard From the Floridiana Hotel Bringing me blue skies And wishing me well Won't you bring me blue skies And wish me well Won't you bring me blue skies And wish me well 
This is Florida Frontiers. Pine Castle was an early pioneer settlement in the Orlando area. Portia Dossi is a student in the public history program at the University of Central Florida and has this look at the history of Pine Castle. Well, Pine Castle is the birthplace of Orlando, and that is something that very few people know. And that's one of the reasons we started the Historical Society is because it has a very significant history in the development of Orlando and Orange County, but that history was just about lost. So we are bringing back, we're trying to give Pine Castle its rightful place in history and also honor the man who founded Pine Castle, who was Will Wallace Harney, a writer and the man who developed Pine Castle. That was Shirley Cannon with the Pine Castle Historical Society. She spoke to us about the early history of Orange County, Florida, and the work of the Historical Society in preserving this history. Pinecastle, Florida is a town in Orange County, first settled in 1870. Will Wallace Harney, who came here in 1869, was quite an interesting man himself. He was an attorney, he was an educator, he was a writer and a poet, and his wife had what they used to call consumption, we think now it was probably tuberculosis, and he thought if he moved to a warm climate that it might help her. Unfortunately, she died right after they got here and he was left with a nine-month-old baby to raise by himself. So he really struggled. He had to learn to be a farmer. So he started writing articles back to the Cincinnati Commercial, which was a major newspaper in those days. And that's how he was able to make a little pocket money. Five years after he came, he had homesteaded 160 acres on the west shore of uh, Lake Conway. And he built a a wooden house with uh, towers that resembled a castle. And he called it his Pine Castle. And that's how the town got its name. It's a very unique structure. Ms. Cannon speaks about the founding of the Pine Castle Historical Society through the Pine Castle Women's Club. Well, the Women's Club has been collecting, formally collecting local history since 1963. Uh, We began doing oral histories. It was a project started by Orlando Junior College, which now is Valencia, I guess. And we published a magazine uh, once a year with the Pioneer Days. And in that magazine, we published uh, the stories which a local historian who's passed away collected. So in those 15 years of magazines, most of what is known about Pine Castle is in those magazines. So we had, the Women's Club has had a strong history interest, and two years ago we decided it was time to create a formal historical society and involve men in the preservation of local history. The Pine Castle Historical Society is a new and growing organization. When we got started two years ago uh, and realized that we had a house to try to save, we set about enlisting members and we set a goal in our first year of 500 members. And at the end of 2015, we reached that goal. So we are continuing to uh, encourage people to join. Uh, We are establishing some committees if there are things that people would like to work on. This is going to be a big, fun project, and we encourage people to join and get involved. One of the projects the Pine Castle Historical Society accomplished is the preservation of the Crawford House. Well, the Crawford House, we believe, was built in 1919 or 1920. We think it may have been built by Paul Macy, who was a local builder. We cannot certify that yet. We're looking. Almost from the beginning, it was Uh, moved into by the Crawford family. And they lived there until the late 50s. 
And at some point, uh, the Crawford daughter, her name was Essie Crawford, and she married a Johns. Johns is a, a local family. So it's played an important role in the community. It was just one block from the Pine Castle School. And there are some living old timers, they're very old now, who can actually remember walking home from Pine Castle School and stopping and visiting on the porch uh, with Miss Essie at the Crawford House. Check out the Pine Castle Historical Society online. That was Shirley Cannon and I am Portia Dossi, a student with the Public History Program at the University of Central Florida. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. You can find us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org, and you can listen as a podcast. Be sure to follow us on Facebook and check your local PBS schedule for the television series version of Florida Frontiers. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase and Robert Casanello. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, the Florida Council of Arts and Culture, and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.